bottom. So for those who, some of you are definitely into this and some definitely not. But if you're the into it type, it's like songs of praise. You can sing along. Okay, so who watched that on Saturday night? About three people. Who likes that? About half of you. Who doesn't? Who thinks it's an abomination? <laughs> who thinks Jesus never walked on England's green and pleasant land and it's all a fairy story? <laughs> who can't understand why anybody should ever sing that in a church? All right, is that Marion? You're voted or you're just waving? <laughs> If you sit, sit, sit yourself down next to Flick. So, uh, if you could switch across to um, my uh, slide set. Let me tell you a story. There were two young fish, and they were swimming upstream one day, swimming along. And as they swam along, these two young fish encountered a much older, wiser fish swimming the other way. And the older, wiser fish, as he swam past them going the other way, said to them, Hey, boys, are you enjoying the water? They swam on, upstream. After about two minutes, one of the young fish turned to the other young fish and said, What's water? The most obvious things in life we take for granted, we don't stop to think about them. They just happen. And in that sense, we lose focus and we fail to live deliberately and on purpose. Our return to the last night of the proms, or at least to Jerusalem, um, a bit later. Um, these uh, four weeks, this is our series, Kaching, Money, how to earn it, manage it, and use it. And of course, the truth is that money is only ever exchanged for our time and our energy. Some of us are time rich, but money poor. Some of us are money rich, but time poor, because we spend all our lives earning the money that we give our time for. So really, this series is about what we do with the resources we have and how we manage each resource we have. It's about, and to this week is about learning to save and to invest 
In other words, it's about thinking about legacy. It's not just about thinking today, about today. It's about thinking about the big thing. It's about not taking for granted the things that we all take for granted. It's about stopping to think. What is water? Who are we? Thinking about legacy. When we think about the, the term ka-ching, we think about money and much of what we've talked about over these last two weeks and indeed what we talk about um, next week and, and indeed today is about money. But Flick's prayers really helpfully picked up something else. Our other resources, our skills, our home, our belonging, our time, our thinking, our access... All of these are resources that we've got that we can choose to use for ourselves or to give away. And there are others to add to the list. I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. You can think about what you have in your hand that you can give. Sometimes it's a phone number, a contact, someone that you know, but actually they can help someone else. Sometimes it's your time. Sometimes it's what you choose to read and to think about or watch. How to invest your life rather than squander your life. You would have heard me say before, and I think this is honestly true, though not universally true. I've sat with huge numbers, I guess, over the years, well, large numbers of people in their last days of life and even in their last hours of life. And the one thing I've watched, more than anything else, is that we all know we're mortal, and we all know we're passing, and we all know we're only here for a moment, each one of us. Life goes very, very fast. But the thing I've seen as people face death, as they shape up to it, is that what matters to them most isn't that they're dying, Although sometimes they're very scared of death because they've not lived, in my opinion, well and thought through the fact that we're temporary. But the thing that often strikes me about people as they face death is that they are so afraid that their life is passing and it's meant nothing whilst they had it. They've not invested in it. I think that's why the Victorians built such huge kind of headstones and mausoleums, a chance to buy a piece of um, more, um, immortality. I think that's why people set up organizations and um, schools and call them after themselves very often, because it's a chance to buy immortality. We have these resources, and our task is to manage them Money, how to earn it, but how to manage it and how to use it and how to manage all the other things that come with it, all of our skills. So this morning, uh, that's what we're going to look, uh, look at. And um, I'm going to talk about money just briefly. Nathan did a brilliant um, uh, talk two weeks ago about debt and credit, and if, you, if you've not listened to that online, you really should. It's um, a fantastic tool for us all at a very practical level. I'm aware that um, some of us here this morning um, will be in debt. Perhaps, actually, I should think most of us here this morning are in debt of some sort. But there's manageable debt, and there's debt that gets out of control. 
And it wouldn't surprise me, and you shouldn't feel ashamed at all if you're sat here this morning and actually your monetary debt is out of control and you're getting, I know what it's like to get letters from the utilities companies and you just have no means of paying them and you end up in the place where you don't even open them. But of course by not opening these letters, whoever they come from, the hole just gets deeper, doesn't it? So what I'm going to do, just very briefly, is, is recap, in a sense, what Nathan said, and perhaps add some things, about, um, about how we budget. But, but really, I'm talking about money and everything else. So some of us aren't money poor. We're money rich. But we still have this precious life, and it's how we invest it. For most of my life, um, I've been really, 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 really poor, I think, and, um, and struggled with being, not having enough cash and for children and all of those expenses. It's a funny thing as you get older, all your children leave you, feed themselves, come round, even make meals for you, <laughs> sometimes, occasionally. And as you get older, you reach a place where your expenses and outgoings suddenly decline. If you're at the age of 40, you are at the age when statistically your, your financial commitments are greatest. Of course, that's not true of everyone. So what happens is this. The first thing is to set up a budget. Now, this, I'm talking about money, but I'm also talking about your time. And how do you set up a budget so you know where you are, live intentionally? You create a record of your expenses. And that might be your expenses in terms of cash, but it may be your expenses in terms of the lifestyle you lead and the people you hang out with and the way you invest your time and you use it. If you set up a budget, you're much more less likely to end up in debt. Whether you take that, um, whether you take that to be literal in terms of money or metaphorical in terms of any of the other resources you've got. If you budget and record your expenses, you won't end up in debt or you're much less likely to. You're much less likely to get caught out by unexpected circumstances. You're much more likely to have resource to loan to others or in monetary terms to pay off loans and obtain a mortgage you're much less likely if you, you're much more likely if you budget to be able to spot areas where you can make savings and can you see how all of these things apply to your use of money but apply to your use of today and tomorrow and next year. If you find yourself this morning sat here and you're thinking, but I'm out of control, how do you get yourself back on track? If you're spending more than you've got coming in, in any sense at all, you need to work out how to get back to where you ought to be and want to be. And that probably means... Giving up non-essentials, re-evaluating, budgeting. What can you spend less on, whether it's your time or your resource or your thinking 
or your cash. For example, in terms of cash, what can you come, cut back on? Well, you can only know what to cut back on when you've done a list of your real expenditure. Now, there are loads of tools online, actually, um, you know, besides a spreadsheet. There are loads of little apps about adding up your expenditure through the month. And, of course, you can check it with your bank account and work out what's going out and how it's got going out, what you're using on your household bills, food and toiletries, what you're spending on rent or mortgage and utilities and council tax, what other financial commitments have you got in terms of loans or insurances or memberships what you spend on family and friends, what are you spending on travel, um, transport, public transport, car costs, what do you spend on leisure, holidays, entertainment, sports, what are you spending your money on? And only when you've got a clear understanding of that can you possibly begin to map how you can save money, how you can cut back. So why should you be saving money? Well, not just for yourself, but for investment. Because everything that I have belongs to God, says the Bible. Jesus told a famous story, and it was about the man. Uh, 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 it was about the man with one talent and the man with two talents, uh, which were coins, and the man with with five talents. And he tells the story about the man who's got one talent, and he hides it in the ground and he buries it because he doesn't want to lose it. And that same thing happens with the man with two talents. But the man with five talents is applauded by Jesus in the story. Why is the man with more talents applauded? Because actually he has an attitude of investment. And he turns his five talents into ten talents by thinking about it. But Jesus never says that comes easily, that he invested his five talents, be they talents or cash or whatever it might be. And because he invested them, it came easy. And automatically his five became ten. I seem to imagine, I imagine that this man takes his five talents and he invests two of them and he keeps three of them, and it all goes wrong, and he loses those two, and he's down to three, but he's learned a valuable lesson, and now he takes his three, and he invents one and a half, but he's learned from the mistake he makes, and that one and a half makes one and a half, and he's back to five, and then he takes three, and he invests that, and it goes okay, but not so well, etc., 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 because in life, that's the way it is, isn't it? My life, I don't know what your life is like, is a struggle, Things don't run smooth. This week hasn't run smooth. I've had great little joys, you know, moments when you think, yeah, achieved that, got that. And I've had huge setbacks because that's the way it is. We get back on track in our lives by sitting down and assessing where we are. Be flexible. Be that with your budgeting because your outgoings change all the time. Be flexible in the life you lead, whatever. You know, I, um, it's ever so easy, isn't it, to establish a way of being. I get up at six, I go running, I have breakfast, I get on the 8.15 bus, I do whatever. And actually, as the months go by, getting up at six and going out running isn't a very helpful thing to do because you leave your partner with all four kids whilst you're kind of getting fit. That's a little lesson I learned. You see? <laughs> so in actual fact, life keeps changing. I, I was talking to a young couple um, just this week uh, with, with a son who's, you know, in, uh, he's a toddler. 
not yet at school, and they reevaluated their lifestyle and refitted it together because it really wasn't working for them, and they were absolutely knackered, both of them, and they had decided we've got to do things differently. And they were reevaluating their life, and they were setting in stone how to go. And I realized that this plan would only last for about the next six months until their little lad starts attending nursery, and then it would all be up in the air again. Be flexible, keep adjusting. Pay off loans. Um, if you found yourself um, overwhelmed, get help. Um, Oasis um, Debt Advice, um, which Nathan talked about, is fantastic. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, we run this debt advice service for others in the community, we run it for ourselves. So seek advice. Seek advice. I often say to people, the best way to learn to manage, you know, because debt's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, so many people are in debt, we're in debt, but lots of people, it's becoming overwhelming. One of the best ways to manage your, your um, own finances is, is to train as a debt advice counsellor and volunteer your time, it really is. And I've often said to people, I've noticed they've done it, you see, it's one thing to come along and, and say, I'm in debt, can you help me? It's a completely different thing to come along and say, I'd like to train as a debt advice counsellor to help others. But what, of course, happens along the way is you learn all of these valuable things and you put them into practice yourself. Get help. And set a savings investment plan or goal. Save, and as you, and if you reach the place where you can save, ask about how you invest that. Now, some people, you know, as they are able to save, they invest, first of all, in a little emergency plan, so they've got an emergency amount of money in case the, the, um, uh, the uh, washing machine breaks down or the tumble dryer or the fridge breaks. You've got this little, you know pot built up so you can cover those emergency things and then beyond that you might actually once you've got that in place uh, build up a little way of saving up for a holiday or saving up for a car that you or a bike or whatever it might be but beyond that you might begin to think about investing in your long-term future because though you're young you're going to be retired before you know it and where um, where, how are you going to sustain a lifestyle? But beyond that, it's not about just us, is it? It's about others, which is where we get back to these words, that you either hated or loved. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among those dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O clouds unfold. Bring me, me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. These words, written by William Blake, and uh, put to uh, music uh, a decade and a half later by um, uh, Hubert Parry, and uh, that became what we now call um, um, Jerusalem. It was originally called And Did Those Feet. And um, it was a poem. And it was written by William Blake um, in, in a... In a in a huge book of poetry, which is called Milton. 
And uh, it doesn't even get into the book of poetry. It's not in the main text. He published it in uh, uh, probably 1806, wrote it in 1804. And this is his, this is the preface. You can't read those words really there, except there's a big splurge, his little preface, and then the bit in the middle, those four stanzas, are what we know as Jerusalem, which was just a poem. And down the bottom, you see there's a line, and under the line, that's as big as I could blow it up, um, under the line, it simply says Numbers 11. And it's Numbers 11, um, I think it's um, verse, uh, well, in fact, I'll look it up. It's verse 29, I'm sure, but I just don't want to mislead you if it's not verse 29. It is verse 29. And, um, and this, um, this poem was the preface to his book. Now, um, William Blake lived round here. Um, he lived in Southwark. In fact, he's one of those characters who you can wander around and you see about t- 15 houses with those little blue plaques on that say um, uh, William Blake lived here. It's a bit like Charlie Chaplin. I mean, if your house hasn't got a blue plaque saying Charlie Chaplin lived here, you're probably the only person in the area. It's not. There are tons of them. Charlie Chaplin went everywhere. Do you know he used to come to the Sunday school here? But everywhere he went, they stuck up a little blue plaque about uh, where he was. William Blake lived around here. And... Um, William Blake was a very committed Christian, but he wasn't part of the Church of England. He was a Protestant, a dissenter in every sense of the word. He was a revolutionary, but he was very committed as a Christian. And um, in this book, Milton, Milton, a poem it's called, a collection of poems, and this comes uh, in the front. And Numbers eleven twenty nine at the bottom simply says this. If you look it up, you'll find it says this. Would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. William Blake saw himself as a prophet. He was absolutely committed to a Christian lifestyle. And he saw things developing in society that he hated. Now, um, if you were, there are the, those words again, would to God that all God's people were uh, prophets. If you look into these lines, oh, thanks, Marianne. If you look into these lines, and was Jerusalem builded here amongst these, these dark satanic mills? If you wander along to Blackfriars Bridge, you know Blackfriars Bridge? Yeah? And you're standing on the south side of Blackfriars Bridge, and you're just about to walk, uh, walk over Blackfriars Bridge. Um, and uh, you are walking on the right-hand side of the road. There's a building. Uh, they've, they've got the new uh, bridge across with the railway station on. So you're standing. You're just about to go across Blackfriars Bridge, yeah? And, you got that, and, and when you look right, you can see the new railway bridge with the station on, yeah? You know where you are? So the last building before you leave the shoreline and you head across the bridge from the south side is, it's been there about 10, 15 years, and it used to be the Daily Mail building. It's not any, the Daily Mail, the paper building. It's, um, yeah, I don't know who owns it now. But in the little corner there, there's a tiny garden. It's about the size of a squash court. And that was the dark satanic mill. So William Blake is talking about something very real. And here's a picture of it. So there you can see. Um, this is what it looked like in uh, 18, uh, in 1791, 
And uh, I'll tell you why there are fires there. You can see uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, that's Blackfriars Bridge. And can you see where that, where that building's on fire? That's where the old Daily Mail building uh, is now. And there's another bridge across just beyond it because that's where, the, um, that's where the, um, sta- uh, the railway bridge is. But the building is on fire. And that building is the first mechanised mill that was built in London in the Industrial Revolution. And it was called the Albion, Albion Mill. And what it did is it put out of work hundreds and hundreds of people along this area, the South Bank and Bankside. It put lots of mills out of work instantly. Families were driven into poverty. They had nothing. What happened in 1791 is that um, the Albion Mill was burnt down. It had only been open a few months There are all sorts of rumours about the quality of the grain they produced and uh, and, just as you get with big corporates today and the way that London's uh, um, uh, children were being starved and uh, there was lots more malnourishment around because all, all of the workers and all of the mills have been put out of business and this huge giant corporation the Albion Mill, with its mechanical grinders, it could produce more grain in one day than all the other mills along the South Bank and Bankside could produce in a week together. And it did it every day. And so, Blake says, and was Jerusalem builded here amongst these deep, dark, satanic mills? Blake knew that this took people's employment. He knew that it took their livelihood. And he knew that, well, he, he said, would that all of God's people were prophets? Would that we stood up for others? Would that we stood up for justice? Would that we, only, we didn't only look to our own interests, but we invested in the interests of others? That's what that line is about. And that's what it's about literally, but metaphorically... Um, he wasn't a member of the Church of England. And, and, he, and people say that when he wrote the line, uh, was Jerusalem builded here amongst these deep, dark, satanic mills, he was also talking about the great cathedrals of London. And there is one across there, which he claimed had become places for the middle classes to meet and pontificate about theology. Concepts that allowed them to go to heaven but robbed other people of humanity. Christians sat round discussing and falling out over theological concepts with one another whilst never rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty on behalf of others. Now, nothing like that could possibly happen today, but that's what he believed back then. And so, the dark satanic mills were literally about the Industrial Revolution and how it robbed people of hope and metaphorically about the fact that the church had become a satanic mill because all it did was contemplate rather than do. And then he writes this. 
Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. Those of you who are old enough know about the film Chariots of Fire that was uh, named after this and this song becomes part of it. But actually it's a reference back uh, to uh, the book of Two Kings and it's back, uh, it's back to the story of Elijah and a chariot of fire. Elijah's prophet who was given when he felt really low and he felt that the state was against him and the king didn't want to hear his message was given a chariot of fire as he stood up for the principles that Yahweh laid down. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem here in England's green and pleasant land. I'll read to you again what uh, Daniel read to us. Revelation chapter 3, a letter written by Jesus to the church in a place called Philadelphia, not the one in the States. It says this, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take it from you. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar of the, of the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You know, because we've talked about it so often, that the Bible simply says that God is renewing the earth. The new Jerusalem, um, metaphorical for the new well-being, the new state of God's uh, kingdom, is coming down. We're not to fly away. The Bible never says that. Rather, it says in Revelation, time after time, and God will return and he will be with us and he'll wipe away tears from our eyes and there'll be no more suffering and no more pain and no more poverty and no more death. Behold, I'm going to make all things new. And you know that our task as the church is to be prophets of that, to speak out. So we should be able to sing these words. Let me, these words with confidence. Far from being a load of old twaddle which has nothing to do with Christianity, they're not suggesting that Jesus ever stood on, on these shores. And did that, it's a question, and did those feet in ancient time walk on England's mountain greens? There was and always has been a myth that when Jesus was a boy, he came here with Joseph of Arimathea. And that's what uh, Blake is picking up on. But he's really saying no. And even if he did, what does it matter? That's not the point. And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? Question mark. And was Jerusalem builded here amongst these dark satanic mills? Question mark. The reality is it's the task of us all to do that. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me the tools that will allow me to be a prophet for God and us a community for Christ as we work out what it means. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall our swords sleep in our hand till we built Jerusalem here in England's green and pleasant land. So there you go. That's the slide that Rich was trying to show you harvestforhope.org. Do look it up.
Last year, we raised 10,000, well, we collected 10,000 items of clothing and tentage, etc., etc., uh, for refugees in Greece, and we sent them to Greece. This year, as Rich said so well, we are going to create accommodation for at least one Syrian refugee family. Winter is descending. There are endless children across Europe with no hope, no help, and no one cares. And still in cathedrals and churches, we sing hymns of praise to God and remind ourselves that he's on our side, whilst others this winter will starve to death or they will drown or they will contract tuberculosis, or they will be trafficked, they will be stolen, they will be abused, they will be raped. And surely, as Blake says, we can't sit here in contentment until we are committed to building this new Jerusalem, a foretaste of what will come, hope for all. You listen to Kadisha talking earlier about volunteering to get involved in youth work. You listen to the uh, news about the work we're doing in St. Thomas's. In the news sheet, it tells you about volunteering, if you can, to get involved with the library and the Oasis Centre, debt advice, the food bank. Are these kind of things that Christians do if they get round to it? No, they are central to who we are. Here's what Paul says. Finally, brothers and sisters... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Budget your money, budget your time, budget your thoughts. Think about these things. Let's plot and let's plan together because we're part of a revolution. In the end, our lives will be gone In 50 years' time, just half a century's time, most of us in this room will not exist anymore. Our lives will be gone. They will be over. All we will occupy is a sentence in a history book. What did we do? What did we stand for? How do we invest our time? That's the challenge to us all. Two fish were swimming along. A wiser fish swam past them and said, Are you enjoying the water, boys? They swim on and they say... What's water? Wake up. We're called to be revolutionaries, to build this new Jerusalem, and to fight in order to bring about this justice in Jesus' name. Thank you.